Chapter Twenty Six of Wild Wales. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Steve Goff. Wild Wales by George Borrow. Chapter Twenty Six. I walked on briskly over a flat, uninteresting country, and in about an hour's time came in front of a large stone house. It stood near the road, on the left-hand side, with a pond and pleasant trees before it, and a number of corn-stacks behind. It had something of the appearance of an inn, but displayed no sign. As I was standing looking at it, a man with the look of a labourer, and with a dog by his side, came out of the house and advanced towards me. "'What is the name of this place?' said I to him in English, as he drew nigh. "'Sir,' said the man, "'the name of the house is Kainiog Maur. "'Is it an inn?' said I. "'Not now, sir. "'But some years ago it was an inn, "'and a very large one, "'in which coaches used to stop. "'At present it is occupied by an Amaithur, "'that is, a farmer, sir. "'Kainiog Maur means a great penny,' said I. "'Why is it called by that name?' "'I have heard, sir, that before it was an inn,' It was a very considerable place, namely a royal mint, at which pennies were made, and on that account it was called Kainiog Maur. I was subsequently told that the name of this place was Kerniog Maur. If such be the real name, the legend about the mint falls to the ground, Kerniog having nothing to do with pence. Kern in Welsh means jaw. Perhaps the true name of the house is Korniog which interpreted is a place with plenty of turrets or chimneys. A mile or two further the ground began to rise, and I came to a small village, at the entrance of which was a water-wheel. Near the village was a gentleman's seat, almost surrounded by groves. After I had passed through the village, seeing a woman seated by the roadside knitting, I asked her in English its name. Finding she had no Seisneg, I repeated the question in Welsh whereupon she told me that it was called Pentrevoilas. "'And whom does the place belong to, yonder, amongst the groves?' said I. "'It belongs to Mr. Wynne, sir, and so does the village, and a great deal of the land about here. A very good gentleman is Mr. Wynne, sir. He is very kind to his tenants, and a very good lady is Mrs. Wynne, sir. In the winter she gives much soup to the poor.' After leaving the village of Pentrevoilas, I soon found myself in a wild, hilly region. I crossed a bridge over a river, which, brawling and tumbling amidst rocks, shaped its course to the northeast. As I proceeded, the country became more and more wild. There were dingles and hollows in abundance, and fantastic-looking hills, some of which were bare, and others clad with trees of various kinds. Came to a little well in a cavity, dug in a high bank on the left-hand side of the road, and fenced by rude stonework on either side. The well was about ten inches in diameter, and as many deep. Water oozing from the bank upon a slanting tile fastened into the earth fell into it. After damming up the end of the tile with my hand, and drinking some very delicious water, I passed on, and presently arrived at a cottage, just inside the door of which sat a good-looking middle-aged woman engaged in knitting, the general occupation of Welsh females. "'Good day,' said I to her in Welsh. "'Fine weather.' "'In truth, sir, it is fine weather for the harvest.' "'Are you alone in the house?' "'I am, sir. My husband has gone to his labour.' 
"'Have you any children? Two, sir, but they are out at service. "'What is the name of this place?' "'Pant Paddock, sir.' "'Do you get your water from the little well yonder?' "'We do, sir, and good water it is. "'I have drunk of it. "'Much good may what you have drunk do you, sir. "'What is the name of the river near here? "'It is called the Conway, sir. "'Dear me, is that river the Conway? "'You have heard of it, sir? "'Heard of it? "'It is one of the famous rivers of the world. "'The poets are very fond of it. "'One of the great poets of my country "'calls it the old Conway.' "'Is one river older than another, sir?' "'That's a shrewd question. Can you read?' "'I can, sir.' "'Have you any books?' "'I have the Bible, sir. Will you show it me?' "'Willingly, sir.' Then, getting up, she took a book from a shelf and handed it to me, at the same time begging me to enter the house and sit down. I declined, and she again took her seat and resumed her occupation. On opening the book, the first words which met my eye were, Gadimi vanid, troi didir. Let me go through your country. Numbers twenty, twenty-two. I may say these words, said I, pointing to the passage. Let me go through your country. No one will hinder you, sir, for you seem a civil gentleman. No one has hindered me hitherto. Wherever I have been in Wales, I have experienced nothing but kindness and hospitality, and when I return to my own country, I will say so. "'What country is yours, sir?' "'England. Do you not know that by my tongue?' "'I did not, sir. I knew by your tongue that you were not from our parts, but I did not know that you were an Englishman. I took you for a comrade of the South Country.' Returning the kind woman her book, and bidding her farewell, I departed, and proceeded some miles through a truly magnificent country of wood, rock, and mountain. At length I came to a steep mountain gorge, down which the road ran nearly due north, the conway to the left running with great noise parallel with the road, amongst broken rocks, which chafed it into foam. I was now amid stupendous hills, whose paps, peaks, and pinnacles seemed to rise to the very heaven. An immense mountain on the right-hand side of the road particularly struck my attention, and on inquiring of a man breaking stones by the roadside, I learned that it was called Dines Mau, or the large citadel, perhaps from a fort having been built upon it to defend the pass in old British times. Coming to the bottom of the pass, I crossed over by an ancient bridge, and, passing through a small town, found myself in a beautiful valley with majestic hills on either side. This was the Dufferin Conway, the celebrated Vale of Conway, to which, in the summer-time, fashionable gentry from all parts of Britain resort for shade and relaxation. When about midway down the valley, I turned to the west, up one of the grandest passes in the world, having two immense doorposts of rock at the entrance, the northern one probably rising to the altitude of nine hundred feet. On the southern side of this pass, near the entrance, were neat dwellings for the accommodation of visitors with cool apartments on the ground floor, with large windows looking towards the precipitous side of the mighty northern hill. Within them I observed tables and books, and young men, probably English collegians, seated at study. After I had proceeded some way up the pass, down which a small river ran, a woman who was standing on the right-hand side of the way, seemingly on the lookout, begged me in broken English to step aside and look at the fall. "'You mean a waterfall, I suppose?' said I. "'Yes, sir.' "'And how do you call it?' said I. "'The fall of the swallow, sir.' 
"'And in Welsh?' said I. "'Ryder a Weno, sir.' "'And what is the name of the river?' said I. "'We call the river the Ligui, sir.' I told the woman I would go, whereupon she conducted me through a gate on the right-hand side, and down a path, overhung with trees, to a rock projecting into the river. The fall of the swallow is not a majestic single fall, but a succession of small ones. First there are a number of little foaming torrents, bursting through rocks about twenty yards above the promontory on which I stood. Then come two beautiful rolls of white water, dashing into a pool a little way above the promontory. Then there is a swirl of water round its corner, into a pool below, on its right, black as death, and seemingly of great depth. Then a rush through a very narrow outlet, into another pool, from which the water clamours away down the glen. Such is the Ryder Wenel, or Swallow Fall, called so from the rapidity with which the waters rush and skip along. On asking the woman on whose property the fall was, she informed me that it was on the property of the Gwedir family. The name Gwedir brought to my mind the history of the Gwedir family, a rare and curious book which I had read in my boyhood, and which was written by the representative of that family, a certain Sir John Wynne, about the beginning of the seventeenth century. It gives an account of the fortunes of the family from its earliest rise, but more particularly after it had emigrated, in order to avoid bad neighbours, from a fair and fertile district into rugged Snowdonia, where it found anything but the repose it came in quest of. The book, which is written in bold graphic English, flings considerable light on the state of society in Wales in the time of the Tudors, a truly deplorable state, as the book is full of accounts of feuds, petty but desperate skirmishes, and revengeful murders. To many of the domestic sagas, or histories of ancient Icelandic families, from the character of the events which it describes, and also from the manner in which it describes them, the history of the Gwedir family, by Sir John Wynne, bears a striking resemblance. After giving the woman sixpence, I left the fall, and proceeded on my way. I presently crossed a bridge, under which ran the river of the fall, and was soon in a wide valley, on each side of which were lofty hills dotted with wood, and at the top of which stood a mighty mountain, bare and precipitous, with two paps, like those of Pindus opposite Janina, but somewhat sharper. It was a region of fairy beauty and of wild grandeur. Meeting an old bleared-eyed farmer, I inquired the name of the mountain, and learned that it was called Moil Siabod or Shabod. Shortly after leaving him, I turned from the road to inspect a monticle, which appeared to me to have something of the appearance of a burial heap. It stood in a green meadow by the river, which ran down the valley on the left. Whether it was a grave hill, or a natural monticle, I will not say, but standing in the fair meadow, the rivulet murmuring beside it, and the old mountain looking down upon it, I thought it looked a very meet resting place for an old Celtic king. Turning round the northern side of the mighty Shebod, I soon reached the village of Capricirig, standing in a valley between two hills, the easternmost of which is the aforesaid Moyle Shebod. Having walked now twenty miles in a broiling day, I thought it high time to take some refreshment, and inquired the way to the inn. The inn, or rather the hotel, for it was a very magnificent edifice, stood at the entrance of a pass leading to Snowdon, on the southern side of the valley, in a totally different direction from the road leading to Bangor, to which place I was bound. There I dined in a grand saloon, amidst a great deal of fashionable company, who, probably conceiving from my heated and dusty appearance 
that I was some poor fellow travelling on foot from motives of economy, surveyed me with looks of the most supercilious disdain, which, however, neither deprived me of my appetite, nor operated uncomfortably on my feelings. My dinner finished, I paid my bill, and having sauntered a little about the hotel garden, which is situated on the border of a small lake, and from which, through the vista of the pass, Snowdon may be seen towering in majesty at the distance of about six miles, I started for Bangor which is fourteen miles from Kerig. The road to Bangor from Kerig is almost due west. An hour's walking brought me to a bleak moor, extending for a long way amidst wild sterile hills. The first of a chain on the left was a huge lumpy hill, with a precipice towards the road, probably three hundred feet high. When I had come nearly parallel with the commencement of this precipice, I saw on the left-hand side of the road two children looking over a low wall, behind which at a little distance stood a wretched hovel. On coming up I stopped and looked at them. They were a boy and girl, the first about twelve, the latter a year or two younger, both wretchedly dressed and looking very sickly. "'Have you any English?' said I, addressing the boy in Welsh. "'Dimgair,' said the boy, "'not a word. There is no Seisneg near here. "'What is the name of this place?' "'The name of our house is Hellig.' "'And what is the name of that hill?' said I pointing to the hill of the precipice. Achtergog, the high place of the cuckoo. Have you a father and mother? We have. Are they in the house? They are gone to Kapelkerig. And they left you alone? They did, with the cat and the treen wire. Do your father and mother make wire work? They do. They live by making it. What is the wire work for? It is for hedges to fence the fields with. Do you help your father and mother? We do, as far as we can. You both look unwell. We have lately had the crid. Ague. Is there much crid about here? Plenty. Do you live well? When we have bread, we live well. If I give you a penny, will you bring me some water? We will, whether you give us a penny or not. Come, sister, let us go and fetch the gentleman water. They ran into the house and presently returned, the girl bearing a pan of water. After I had drunk, I gave each of the children a penny, and received in return from each a dioch, or thanks. Can either of you read? Neither one nor the other. Can your father and mother read? My father cannot. My mother can a little. Are there books in the house? There are not. No Bible? There is no book at all. Do you go to church? We do not. To chapel? In fine weather. Are you happy? When there is bread in the house and no crid, we are all happy. Farewell to you, children. Farewell to you, gentlemen, exclaimed both. I have learned something, said I, of Welsh cottage life and feeling from that poor sickly child. I had passed the first and second of the hills which stood on the left, and a huge long mountain on the right which confronted both when a young man came down from a gully on my left hand, and proceeded in the same direction as myself. He was dressed in a blue coat and corduroy trousers, and appeared to be of a condition a little above that of a labourer. He shook his head and scowled when I spoke to him in English, but smiled on my speaking Welsh, and said, "'Ah, you speak Camraig. I thought that no size could speak Camraig." I asked him if he was going far. "'About four miles,' he replied. "'On the Bangor Road?' "'Yes.' said he, down the Bangor Road. I learned that he was a carpenter, 
and that he had been up the gully to see an acquaintance, perhaps a sweetheart. We passed a lake on our right, which he told me was called Llyn Ogwen, and that it abounded with fish. He was very amusing, and expressed great delight at having found an Englishman who could speak Welsh. "'It will be a thing to talk of,' said he, "'for the rest of my life.' He entered two or three cottages by the side of the road, and each time he came out I heard him say, "'I was with a size who can speak Camraic." At length we came to a gloomy-looking valley, trending due north. Down this valley the road ran, having an enormous wall of rocks on its right, and a precipitous hollow on the left, beyond which was a wall equally high as the other one. When we had proceeded some way down the road, my guide said, "'You shall now hear a wonderful echo,' and shouting, "'Taw, taw!' the rocks replied in a manner something like the baying of hounds. "'Hark to the dogs!' exclaimed my companion. "'This pass is called Nanta Yank Goon, the pass of the young dogs, because when one shouts, it answers with a noise resembling the crying of hounds. The sun was setting, and we came to a small village at the bottom of the pass. I asked my companion its name. Tina Mice, he replied, adding as he stopped before a small cottage that he was going no further, as he dwelt there. Is there a public house here? said I. There is, he replied. You will find one a little further up on the right hand. Come and take some ale, said I. No, said he. Why not? I demanded. I am a teetotaler, he replied. Indeed, said I, and having shaken him by the hand, thanked him for his company, and bidding him farewell, went on. He was the first person I ever met of the fraternity to which he belonged, who did not endeavour to make a parade of his abstinence and self-denial. After drinking some tolerably good ale at the public house, I again started. As I left the village, a clock struck eight. The evening was delightfully cool, but it soon became nearly dark. I passed under high rocks, by houses and by groves, in which nightingales were singing, to listen to whose entrancing melody I more than once stopped. On coming to a town, lighted up and thronged with people, I asked one of a group of young fellows its name. Bethesda, he replied. A scriptural name, said I. Is it? said he. Well, if its name is scriptural, the manners of its people are by no means so. A little beyond the town a man came out of a cottage and walked beside me. He had a basket in his hand. I quickened my pace, but he was a tremendous walker and kept up with me. On we went, side by side, for more than a mile, without speaking a word. At length, putting out my legs in genuine Barclay fashion, I got before him about ten yards. Then, turning round, laughed and spoke to him in English. He too laughed and spoke, but in Welsh. We now went on like brothers, conversing, but always walking at great speed. I learned from him that he was a market gardener, living at Bangor, and that Bangor was three miles off. On the stars shining out, we began to talk about them. Pointing to Charles's Wayne, I said, A good star for travellers. Whereupon, pointing to the North Star, he said, A forwir die yawn, a good star for mariners. We passed a large house on our left. Who lives there? said I. Mr. Smith, he replied. It is called Plasnewith. Myrtir Gelom Eto. We have yet another mile. In ten minutes we were at Bangor. I asked him where the Albion Hotel was. I will show it you, said he, and so he did. As we came under it I heard the voice of my wife, for she, standing on a balcony, and distinguishing me by the lamplight, called out. We shook hands with the kind six-mile-an-hour market gardener, and going into the inn found my wife and daughter, who rejoiced to see me. 
We presently had tea. End of chapter 26